Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. Now how many of you get really pumped studying and thinking about apologetics? Anybody? Come on now. See some hands? Yeah. How many of you have no idea what apologetics means? All right. I'm with you. I'm with you. It feels like you're apologizing for something, right? You're like, what is that? Well, very simple terms. Apologetics is a defense of the gospel. That's it. A defense of the gospel. And if that's too complicated for you, apologetics is simply telling people about Jesus. People that don't know Christ, we want to tell them about Christ. That's apologetics. And for our purposes this morning, as we just heard 1 Peter chapter 3, the apologetics we'll deal with today is not what to say, but how to say it. Rather than focus on methods and systems, which typically apologetic classes are about, which is good, the methods and the systems, but today we're going to focus on character and tone. And I know some of you would rather me focus on methods and systems because your character and tone is not so good. That's why we're going there, character and tone. A book I found extremely helpful is called Apologetics at the Cross. Apologetics at the Cross. I'd recommend it. It's a big book. It's really good. And I'm even referring to this book extensively today as I found it extremely helpful. And in this book, they lay out two dispositions on approaching apologetics. Apologist at the cross and apologist of glory. And I'm going to show you a slide of each. First is apologist at the cross, where we engage others with humility, honesty, and confidence in the apparent foolishness of the cross. We sacrifice personal triumph, and we submit to God and his word. When on the other hand, it's called apologist of glory. Apologist of glory, they seek honor, power, and personal satisfaction from an apologetic encounter. They exhibit pride and triumphalism, and they diminish the scandal of the cross to make it more palatable to the current culture. And today, we're going to go down the road of what it looks like to be an apologist at the cross. And the practical implications of being an apologist at the cross is going to be seen at the end, but you have to stick with Peter's rationale and reason in order to get there because what we want is we want to see people come to Jesus. We want to see people know Christ. That's why we have this rose over here. Someone in our church just came to Christ on Friday. And I, I am been so amazed, even among this age group, People are coming to Christ. I feel like we're at among teenagers. You know, a lot of teenagers come to Christ. I feel like that's what's happening in the village. A lot of people are coming to Christ. We baptized 20 people over Labor Day weekend. We've baptized 
tons of people this year. We're gonna baptize some more next month because people are still coming to Christ and it's because you are opening your mouth and telling them about Jesus. And we wanna be better at that, right? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Now for those of you paying attention, You may be wondering why we are skipping over 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, where it talks about a relationship between a husband and a wife. I'm saving that section for Pastor Jim Neal, who will preach it on December 1st. I don't have no problem teaching on it now, but he's going to teach it December 1st, and it's going to launch into a marriage class that he's going to teach in the new year, okay? So that's where we're going with that, letting you know. But for our purposes this morning, we're in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. And for those of you just joining us, Peter is addressing a church who's under persecution and he's encouraging them to press on to endure and not to quit. But as they press on and endure and they don't quit, they also want to be ready to tell others about Jesus Christ. But their apologetic, their defense of the gospel is not just in what they say, but also how they interact with unbelievers. And that's why we're going to do this two-part thing here this morning. We're going to look at the church as a living apologetic. That means how you live. And then we're going to look at apologetics at the cross. So let's start with the church as a living apologetic. And we see in verses 8 through 12, nine areas or traits or virtues that the individuals in the corporate body must exhibit. So let's start with verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Peter's laying out the way he wants the church to function as a living apologetic. You see, what he's getting at here is you want to live in such a way that people come up to you and say, excuse me, what is this hope that I see in you? I see the way you're living. What is going on? Can you explain that to me? And that's what Peter is doing. He says, you want to be living your life as a living apologetic. And he starts with harmonious. And harmonious, that's definitely what believers are known for, right? I mean, can anybody ever come up, go up to believers and say, you know what? Tell me about this hope because you guys interact just like we do. You're always fighting. No. We want to be harmonious living in unity. And the second virtue is sympathetic. It means life's not all about me. It's not all about us. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And one way you can tell if you're sympathetic or not is if you're mainly talking about yourself or showing interest in others. The third virtue is brotherly. I don't use this word much, but it's the idea of friendship or companionship which means that I not only love you, but I also like you. Brotherly, like a family. We don't show favorites. Brotherly. Number four is kind-hearted. This is a heart full of compassion. It's not about kind feelings, but about kind action, being full of grace and mercy to those who are hurting. And the fifth virtue is humble in spirit. It's putting others' needs ahead of our own, it's not that I'm not going to just dra- brag about myself, not at all. I want to draw attention to you and care for you. And the reality is we want to see Christians live in humility. 
Now make sure before we go look at the rest of them, make sure you understand what we're doing. We're talking about living your life as a living apologetic where people will come up to you and say, I see the way you're living. Tell me what's going on. I want to understand that. And I really want to press this home to you because I want you to think about your own life. Think about for a moment all the trials that you've gone through in your life. Maybe there's some trials you're going through now, maybe some relationships, your physical stuff's going on. Imagine for a moment that through all your trials, you don't know Jesus. Now imagine after all your trials and all your suffering where you don't know Christ, once you die, you're going to spend eternity facing the wrath of God in hell forever. That's why we do apologetics. That's why we tell others about Jesus. That's why it's not just about our words. It's also about how we're living our life to be combined with our words because we as a church want to see people come to Christ. Now let these next four virtues hit you, hit you even harder. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So the sixth virtue is not returning evil for evil. Someone strikes us, we don't strike them back. Someone wants to crush us, we're not there to crush them back. We're there to give a blessing. Think about all your interactions on Facebook. Are you there to give a blessing or an insult? We've been called to give a blessing. Pick it up in verses 10 through 12. Peter quotes here from Psalm 34. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see the seventh virtue there? No evil or deceitful speech. No gossip, no slander, no cussing, no evil forms of speech. But our words are to be encouraging, to be a blessing of others. That's our calling. And the eighth virtue, as you can see it in verse 11, is that we're going to be pursuing good. It's like we put to death our evil deeds and pursue a life of goodness and serving others. And the last virtue is seen in verse 11 where he talks about seeking peace and pursuing it rather than pursuing evil and discord where people known for peace. We want to be those who walk in righteousness. And as it says in verse 12, we want to catch the eye of the Lord. We want his ears open to our prayers. We never want his face against us. Now let's keep those, 11, those nine up right there, okay? Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, no evil or deceitful speech, pursuing good, seeking and pursuing peace. When the world describes Christians, are these the first traits that come to mind? When the world describes Christians, are these the first traits that come to mind? Do you see how we can talk about apologetics all day long, but if we're not living life as a living apologetic, our conversation will go nowhere. Chuck Swindoll put it like this. Apologetics 101 begins not with having the right answers to others' skeptical challenges, but with having the right lifestyle to raise the right questions. It's about having the right lifestyle to raise 
the right questions. Okay, early church started off really small, and then the early church boomed throughout the Roman Empire. How did that happen? You can say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Of course it's the Holy Spirit. You can say, well, they were telling others about Jesus. Of course they're telling others about Jesus. But do you realize the early church were a living apologetic? Historian Rodney Stark, he, he said this, that there were a variety of plagues. Did you know this? Diseases that, that just filled cities. And what happened during that time is that the unbelievers in these cities, they, they got out during these plagues and, and during these epidemics. They're gone. But the Christians stayed. Did you know that? And the Christians didn't only take care of their own, but they also took care of unbelievers in the name of Christ. And in so doing, what happened is that the death transferred from the one they were caring for onto themselves, and they died in their place. It was said of early Christians that Christians lived and died better than anyone else. May that be said of us, that we live and die better than anyone else. The church was a living apologetic, and the gospel spread, not just by the words, which is key, but also by, by the way they were living. And I believe that we as a church here in a church in America need to get back to where we're known for sacrificial service. So let me, let me just give you one area. I mean, I could, I could spend all day giving you different areas. So let me give you something that's very close to my heart, and I just want to throw this out to you. Uh, the church is a living apologetic. Something that's been said over and over again, and you may or may not know this, that there are more churches in America than children in foster care. Do the math there. More churches in America than children in foster care. And the argument goes something like this. If each church would just take in one kid, then we could empty the foster care system. Just one kid. But I'm going to push it even further. Let's say that every church stepped up to take up one kid. Empty the system. Still wouldn't fix the problem. More kids would just flow right back in. So what if the church not only enters the foster care system, but seeks to minister to the community that are putting the kids in the foster care in the first place? And let's take it even further for, for our community. You're thinking, well, I'm not taking any foster kids in my house. Well, let's take it even further. Something I've witnessed here that I, I rarely saw in Chicago is grandparents taking in their grandkids, even some of you. The troubled situations, you bring your grandkids in. And I believe that we as a church have an opportunity to support you and encourage you and be a living apologetic where your neighbors can say, why in the world would you bring in your grandkid? And then you can point to Jesus. There are many ways that we can do this. We want to be a living apologetic. But eventually, we're going to have to open our mouths. Whoever said, you know, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Don't ever say that, please. And don't quote Francis that said he never said that. He was a preacher of preachers. He wouldn't say that. You don't want to just live your life. You want to open your mouth and share the gospel also. 
So don't just think, I live right, and it's going to be good enough. No, no, also we have to open your mouth, and that's where Peter is going as we now look at apologetics at the cross. Now it's time to open your mouth. Verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. That's interesting. Well, I used to have a very naive philosophy in life. My philosophy went like this. If I'm good and I don't mess with others, then they won't mess with me. And when I read this question here in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And my answer would have been no one. But if I'm reading the Bible rightly, it says all of those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just a reality. But it's not a cause for alarm. It's not a cause for fear because they may kill the body, but they cannot destroy our soul. So the question is, what should we do instead of being afraid? Verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Instead of fear, we are to set apart Christ as Lord over us, which means we're in full submission to Him. Whatever He says goes. He is everything, He is our all, and we give and submit everything to Him. And as we submit everything to Him, there are going to come moments where we have interactions with those who do not know Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why would people ask those in Peter's church to explain the hope that was in them? Because the people in Peter's church are holding on to their faith even when they're being crushed. People in Peter's church are loving one another even when they're facing poverty and hard times. And the outside looks in at the believers and they say, tell, tell me more about that. Tell me more about the hope that I see in you. And at that moment, you got to be ready to give a defense. Now be careful here. I don't mean that you need to read all the apologetics books, which is fine doesn't mean you have to have every single answer to all the questions that people are going to ask you about faith or Jesus. You can study. You can learn more about that. But the reality is when you give a defense of the gospel, you've got to keep coming back to simplicity. If I came up to you and I said, tell me how to become a Christian, could you do it? If I said, tell me the good news, can you tell me? Keep it simple. Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live. Jesus died the death that you couldn't die. And he was buried and rose again. And the good news is you can have a relationship with the Father and be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. It's a repentant faith where you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus who died in your place, lived the perfect life in your place, and rose to reconcile you to the Father. And you can even throw some simple stories in. 
like I did with my kids last night. I'm trying to explain the idea of repentant faith to them. And we talked about a root beer float. And what's in a root beer float? Root beer and ice cream. What is believing in Jesus mean? It means repentance and faith bring them together, a repentant faith. Instead of going my way and doing the things I want to do, I repent, I turn around, and I put my faith in Jesus. Simplicity. Keep coming back to the gospel. You can talk to someone for one to two to three hours, but keep coming back to the gospel, that defense. But look it up, one more thing you gotta do. This is the thing you might not like. Look at the very end of verse 15. With gentleness and respect. When you're talking about your faith around the Thanksgiving table with your unbelieving family members, with gentleness and respect. Even when others are hostile to you and going off on you and maybe slandering you and making fun of you, gentleness and respect. You don't show up to the Thanksgiving table and treat it like a boxing match. And this corners the believer and this corners the unbeliever. Ding, ding, now duke it out and let's see who survives. It's been said that we are not looking for the intellectual knockout punch. We're proceeding with gentleness and respect And if you're not careful, my brothers and sisters, you can be pretty good at winning arguments, but not winning over people. You can be good at winning arguments, but not winning over people. You can be like the gunslinger that shoots bullets all over the place, defending the town, while no one on the other end lays down the gun and puts on the white hat. Gentleness and respect. But there will be pain. As we see in verse 16 and 17, this is cross-centered apologetics because Jesus suffered and we do as well as we follow him. Verses 16 and 17. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather for doing what is wrong. We maintain this good conscience before God knowing that we are not fighting back when we are slandered. And those who are slandering our good behavior will ultimately be put to shame. This is cross-centered apologetics because we are giving out the gospel and we're suffering for doing what is right rather than doing for what is wrong. The great philosopher Oz Guinness, he put it like this. He said, true to the cross of Jesus, Christian persuasion has to be cross-shaped in its manner just as it is cross-shaped in its message. Let's say it again. True to the cross of Jesus, Christian persuasion has to be cross-shaped in its manner just as it is cross-shaped in its message. So just as we give them the cross in our presentation, we also want to walk with humility even in a form of suffering and giving out the gospel. And this distinguishes when we talk about apologists of glory and apologists at the cross. Let's revisit that once again and talk about apologists at the cross. I'm going to show you the slide once again. It says, engage others with humility, honesty, and confidence in the apparent foolishness of the cross. 
Sacrifice personal triumph. Submit to God and His Word. Don't be an apologist of glory where you seek honor, power, and personal satisfaction for an apologetic encounter. Exhibit pride and triumphalism and you diminish the scandal of the cross to make it more palatable to the current culture. Now before I'm going to give you a little bit of practical steps, before I even go there, okay? Practical steps of what to do, what not to do. Let me just tell you this. Some of you are wondering, okay, this is great, but how can I get into a conversation with someone who doesn't know Christ? How can I even get into a conversation with them? How can I even have a context that is set up which is conducive to me sharing the Gospels? Many people wonder that. We can talk about apologetics all day long, but what's the context of the conversation? This is exactly what we've been talking about all year and something we call eat, love, pray. Remember that? This is simple. This is really hard. This is really simple. Invite someone out for a meal in your home or the restaurant, love them, get to know them, share the gospel with them, and then pray for them. That's the context. And you go, well, I just don't like to eat. (laughs) It's okay. We got another one for you. What's the next one? Let's see. Oh, fish. Love praying. Take someone fishing. Love them. Share the gospel. Pray for them. But you say, I don't like to fish. What's next? Game, love, pray. Play some games, somebody. Bring them over to your house. What's the next one? Gift, love, pray. Showering gifts on others and explain why you're giving them gifts. It's because of Christ and what he's done. What's another one? Golf, love, pray. I know a lot of you golf. Let me encourage you to golf with people who don't know Jesus. And interact with them. It will work on your own sanctification as well. Because you don't want to be, you know, mouthing off when you need to be sharing the gospel. Hike, love, pray. Look where you live. Come on. Look where you live. When you see all these trails, you should think gospel opportunities. Party, love, pray. Always something going on in the village. Opportunities for the gospel. Picnic love, pray. Beautiful beaches. Beautiful lakes. Invite people out. Shop love, pray. Don't act like you don't shop. (laughs) These are the contexts for sharing the gospel. Swim love, pray. You're like, well, how's that going to (laughs) work? It can work. Swim love, pray. Tennis, love, pray. Lots of people playing tennis here. Go out and play. Share the gospel. Lots of context. So if you say, I, have, I, don't, know, I don't know when to do this, I'm sorry, I just gave you like 11, all right? There's a lot of context. So when you finally get to that point and you're going to share the gospel, here's a few practical steps. Number one, Listen and take others seriously. Please take the time to get to know the other person. Don't just blast away with the gospel. Seek to treat others like a human being that are valuable in the sight of God. Number two, 
Avoid falsely representing the other side. That means don't build a straw man of their beliefs in order to blow them over. Even if their arguments are difficult to deal with, don't misrepresent them in order to better fit your presentation. Number three, resist assuming motive. If someone says they don't believe in the resurrection, don't automatically assume they don't believe it just because they want to live in sin. Maybe get to know them better and what's going on in their heart. Number four, when you can, find points of agreement to affirm. Maybe you can agree with others that the world is broken and there is some intuitive sense of right and wrong. When my friend and I would go out on the streets, we would ask people the question, what's wrong with our world? How can you fix it? Bridge that gap. Number five, this is going to be the hardest one. I feel like this will be the hardest one for all of you. Resist focusing on the periphery. This is not a time to talk about the end times. It's not a time to get into the minutiae. Not a time to be talking about all things way out. You know, keep it simple. Narrow it on the gospel. And number six, avoid being unnecessarily antagonistic. My brothers and sisters, the cross is offensive enough. Don't add to it. You're telling people a cross-centered message that one who's died a brutal death bearing the wrath of God is the one that can give them the only hope they will ever find. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way, guided by God's Word.